0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. The Bauhaus is seen as a primary force behind functionalist architecture in the 20th century. However, as our examinations of its early years have revealed, the school was rooted in Expressionism before it drifted into more industrial territory as of 1923. At first glance, suprematism's highly geometric abstraction would seem to be in phase with, or even in anticipation of, this shift, much in the same way that Van Doesburg pushed de Steele's idealism as modernizing leverage on the Bauhaus. Indeed, El Lissitzky, Malevich's star pupil, would become a prominent Bauhaus master and one of its most influential faculty members. But the move from Russia to Germany required much more than a change in location. The fact is, suprematism's core identity never played a large role in the design school in 1927 malevich's theory was published as bauhaus book number 11 the non-objective world by this time the faculty at Dessau had, by economic circumstance and some HR manipulation, become more intellectually uniform than they had been in the contentious Weimar days. Considering this flow toward relative calm, the school's introduction to Malevich's book seemed like a throwback to the days of clay interceding in the spats between Kandinsky and Itten. Unlike Kandinsky, though, whose professorship had a red carpet rolled out ahead of it, or Lysitsky, whose pliancy made him more welcome, Malevich only visited Germany and would not leave Russia to become a Bauhaus master. His book was likely published as a favor to Hilbersheimer, And far from the platform of Bauhaus Book 11 supporting his ideas, its introduction explicitly stated that the school disagreed with them. This is a telling departure from just five years prior. In episode 24, we noted how, back in the Weimar days, Gropius had enthusiastically written of a future counterpoint of visual arts, citing figures as disparate as organic expressionist Gertrude Grunov and industrial purist Le Corbusier. By 1927, a man who seemed perfectly poised to not just participate in that spatial counterpoint but define it had his ideas nearly struck through in red ink so what were the ostensible grounds for this split while suprematism did appear to define the emerging sense of spatial harmony that so many prominent figures in the avant-garde were struggling to grasp it went out of its way to dismantle the foundations of expressionism and functionalism alike when one realizes that these currents were too vital and opposing forces of the 19th century. This casts the intellectual stance of the Bauhaus in a light different to that of historical orthodoxy. The school clearly wanted to create a unified architecture unburdened by the past, one that would serve future generations well. It had an inspired, but oftentimes, and especially after 1923, vague sense of how the spatial dynamics of this new conception of form in concert with space were playing out. In many ways, the work of Adolf Loos was always one step ahead, and that of Louis Sullivan several. What the school was very clear on was recognizing the lacuna between art and industry and desiring to bridge that gap. The main project of the Bauhaus was not substantially different from the common concern Velde and muthesius had articulated years before the Great War, that consumer products and worker housing fulfill the functional promise of applied industrial innovation while not neglecting the artistic inner need of the soul that the expressionist painters would impart to young designers. Recognized by these hallmarks, The Bauhaus retained a nagging but faint idea that it was on the cusp of a new understanding of art and architecture, though the actions it pursued and accomplished were, rather than establishing something truly novel, to resolve tensions and contradictions endemic to the 19th Century. And it is because of Gropius's apparently consistent open mindedness that we find the distance at which suprematism was held intriguing. With the aid of historic perspective, though, it becomes clear that Malevich was standing on the shoulders of a giant that the Bauhaus slew and mummified. It ended up crystallizing, moving ever more towards Euclidean forms on a civilizing path of analytic study. The Enlightenment dreams implicit in Ledoux's statement that, circle and square, these are the letters of the alphabet became formally manifest in the flatness of the international style malevich on the other hand began suprematism with such simplicity and from these brutally restricted foundations managed to synthetically articulate better than anyone else we have yet seen the disruptive currents of a rising culture that was starting to surface. The painter directly stated that the new art of suprematism, which has produced new forms and form relationships by giving external expression to pictorial feeling, will become a new architecture. It will transfer these forms from the surface of canvas to space. Here there is no getting lost in discussions of inner need. Understanding of pictorial feeling leads directly to new form. Where Kandinsky ended. In a labyrinthine gaze, literally framing a space, Malevich began with manifest shape creating space. None of the expressionists who always maintained that they would transform architecture by transforming the soul of the individual ever made so direct a claim to influencing architecture. You can see sculptural examples of Malevich's architectural studies in our website's page for this episode. If the Bauhaus was fitting buildings into Euclidean shapes, Malevich was growing structure out of them and very appropriately, he was adamant that these works were unfinished. He did not call them architecture, but architecton, a Greek word roughly translating to clever artificer. At the earliest attestation, it applied to Odysseus when he fashioned both the burnt tip spear and the no-man ruse that slew the Cyclops Polyphemus. In several ways, the architectons of suprematism present a means of overcoming and escaping the enormous legacy of post-enlightenment Europe. Before we leave you to our next episode, however, There is some additional comment on history happening today regarding the UK leaving the European Union that merits note, even if you are listening to this recording long after the fact. We also want to extend thanks to our loyal listeners for being patient with us as we release new content. We will be back to our regular releases soon, with some surprises for you, and new voices in the feeds. But on to Brexit. The separation of the UK from the EU is not a singular event, but a milestone on a road that the West's decline has been paving for a long while, as a form. The European nation-state was not satisfied by solving problems it was suited to, but overreached. Whenever there is a twilight in history, the rising of one system overlapping with another's wane, the finalizing analysis within the old civilization contends with an assertive synthesis of the emergent culture. It is very, very rare for these transitions to be managed without some kind of damaging conflict. This episode's analysis of the Bauhaus vis-a-vis suprematism, for example, found that the design school was not innovating so much as largely resolving old conflicts, while suprematism was truly breaking new ground. The fact that the Bauhaus appeared to be an agent of progress and had a very broad influence does not invalidate but reinforces this view. Old empires are largest at the point of hypertrophy, just before decay and collapse. And nothing sells like a fashion that is going out of style. It is when all seems most neatly resolved that things are truly ripe and ending. As Hegel famously noted in The Philosophy of Right, when philosophy paints its gray in gray, one form of life has become old, and by means of gray, it cannot be rejuvenated, but only known. The Owl of Minerva takes its flight only when the shades of night are gathering increase in clarity increase in civilization in understanding comes hand in hand with dissipation of vitality with decadence it is with great discomfort that we now face the populist chimera of post-factual democracy. The newly rising passions are striving to tear at the wheel of the carefully constructed rationalist machinery, and they will crash it, unless a new and distinct arena for the political expression Of these sentiments is found. The bad news is that several new vehicles are in development, none of which are held in civilized esteem. In the West, we call it the militia movement. In the East, we call it ISIL. Both of these uprisings, one supposedly Christian, the other presumably Islamic, are on the same side of historical force when you consider their equally nihilistic opposition to organized states. The assertion of vitality or culture always comes with new blood and sharp elbows, with the establishment of the UN and the EU The peace and harmony of and among the established nation states was evidence that their model of organization was arriving to an end. What the Congress of Vienna and before it the peace of Westphalia attempted, the EU finally resolved, and so that concord yielded A gray-in-gray honeymoon, which lasted right until the world had changed enough for the system to crack. Despite its excellent intentions, the EU has been suffering from hypertrophy, the classic terminal disease of empires. Nor is the UK's vote to leave the first symptom of it, even though it presents the first limb of the body to be severed. The question of Greece was an earlier signpost. The failure to attain an EU constitution by referendum was another. EU membership for Greece was akin to an empire taking a province that it cannot hold, a needless error Born of inflated self-confidence, in a very recent interview, historian Simon Schama called Brexit the greatest act of unforced national self-harm in history. But he sadly ignores all those times that Rome started a land war in Asia, beginning with Crassus's disastrous and unprovoked Parthian campaign that broke up the first triumvirate, casting the then-stable empire into civil war. So, with all due respect to Dr. Shama, things are not yet all that grim. But we are facing a historic shift, and it is hardly the nationalist reassertion kindred to the fascist movements of the 1920s that many on the left have been worrying about. Oddly enough, the so-called neo-nationalist resurgence, which is actually cultural populism, comes as the obverse side of the globalization coin. In order to preserve economic viability, and hitch national interests together, nation states chose to actively promote the rising power of international corporations via free trade deals such as NAFTA and free trade zones such as Benelux, the root of the EU. Once again, just as in the case of ISIL and the Michigan militia, What seem to be opposing forces are aligned in their opposition to the nation-state. The logical culmination of a project like the EU's is the gradual dissolution of the nation-state, and this is what Britain was reacting to, albeit in a wrenchingly wrong way. Those who wished to leave wanted to preserve the UK and were either unaware of the severe economic collateral damage or didn't care. The demographics of the vote seemed to bear that out, with young people voting to stay while the old voted to leave. In the best of impossible worlds, The British Union should have continued to slowly and peacefully dissolve, with the extension of EU apparatus making something like, say, Scottish independence an eventually obsolete question. In the least, however, we are seeing the converse to be true. The Brexit is now compelling Scotland to once again vote on if they should leave the UK. But what this all really brings to the fore are the questions, who has the power in our current global circumstance, and how do they execute it? It may appear that nationalism is resurgent with US elections and the UK referendum, but these are the dying screams of dinosaurs. Nation-states peaked at Westphalia and in the administration of the Sun King, while the colonies lent them a facelift and a blood transfusion. The long trend over the past 200 years in post-Napoleonic Europe has been to create multinational organizations by means of which to harmonize the nation-states. The Concert of Europe predates the EU by a long shot, and a series of conductors going from Talleyrand to Bismarck and from Roosevelt to Churchill stand for us to comment upon praise, or criticize. In the shadow of this late harmony, finally well-tempered to EU 440, in the post-World War II era, large banks and corporations lead the actions of state fiscal policy, while, with depressing predictability, terrorists asymmetrically pull the strings of the military apparatus. Economic and military power, two of the fundamental aspects of the nation-state, are now being driven by entities scattered across cities and individuals. The final leg of the nation-state left to be kicked out is the legitimacy of jurisprudence. And we should be patient with that one. After all, Justinian and Charlemagne both attempted to assert Roman law long after the empire had ceased to exist. We may well be entering an age in which a fig leaf of legalistic forms and pronouncements honoring an ever more impotent state, is laid over a new reality that societies thus far refuse to acknowledge. What is already taking place is exercise of power amongst a network of interrelated individuals and corporations. And remember, terrorists do use a corporate structure. You don't defeat Amazon.com by killing CEO Jeff Bezos with a drone. Terror may be more or less contained by military police action, but it will only be defeated by competing with what it sells to people outside the notable exception of the so-called isil caliphate these new organizations including corporations have not yet coalesced into some equivalent of a hanseatic style league of city states but the potential spread of isil's model whether through terrorism or through the inevitable hiring of private military forces by corporations, would be further evidence of impending transfer of that third leg of power, legal legitimacy. Currently, the international community recognizes only nation-states as legitimate. That course maintained is only recipe for further conflict. Unless it either creates or acknowledges the existence and formation of a distinct city-state and federated organization, or brings this about by itself, violence will grow. The EU was a gentle rolling, of a snowball down a hill that Brexit has indelibly pushed back up the slope again, adding weight and increasing the odds of an avalanche. What we need is the opposite side of the EU's bathtub curve, something that gently rolls up a new hill. But if the reactionary sentiments of stubborn national sovereignty are clung to, the whole world will fight with or against a ghost. And for what our agency is worth, we choose to be on neither side of that battle. Join us as we conclude our reading of Suprematism watching as Malevich draws the organic from the inorganic, next time on Lapsus Lima.